0: He was People Magazine's sexiest man alive, which is not surprising considering his handsome physique, excellent bone structure, and flowing hair. He looks fantastic when his face is clean-shaven, and even better when it's not. In fact, Robert Downey Jr. just came out and said it. We've got to take this guy out. He's too good-looking, too tall, and too charming. You may be thinking that I'm describing my co-host Donovan, but I'm actually referring to actor Chris Hemsworth, perhaps best known for playing the character Thor on the immensely popular Marvel superhero series. The Thor character is the epitome of physical strength and power. I mean... The guy runs around, smashing things with his huge magical hammer, crushing his enemies, defending the universe, all while maintaining his witty sense of humor. So when something comes out that reveals the human side of Thor, it can get some attention among us mere mortals. Recently, Chris announced that he's taking some time off from acting because he tested positive positive for a genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease, the most common cause of dementia, has a genetic component, which can actually be tested for. For some individuals who may have a family history, the genetic test may be a welcome tool to assess their personal risk, while others may not wanna know whether they're at higher risk especially considering there is no cure for the disease. In this episode, we'll speak with a researcher who investigates the psychological and behavioral impact of genetic risk disclosure for Alzheimer's disease. I'm Matt Davis. And I'm Donovan Most. You're listening to Mining Memory, a podcast devoted to exploring research on Alzheimer's disease and other related dementias. We're joined today by Dr. J. Scott Roberts. Dr. Roberts is a professor in the Department of Health Behavior and Health Education at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. There, he serves as the co-director of the Dual Degree Program in Public Health and Genetic Counseling and is a core lead of the Michigan Alzheimer's Disease Center. His research interests focus on the process and impact of risk assessment and disclosure adult-onset disorders, as well as the ethical, legal, and social implications of advances in genomic science and technology. Since 2001, he has served as the co-principal investigator of the REVEAL study, that stands for Risk Evaluation and Education for Alzheimer's Disease. REVEAL is an NIH-funded series of clinical trials that examine the psychological and behavioral impacts of genotype-based risk disclosure. He's here today to speak with us about genetic testing for Alzheimer's disease. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Matt. It's great to be here. So we have a lot to talk about today, and I would say perhaps learn. Uh, So why don't we jump right in? When we talk about diseases such as Alzheimer's, you know, it's pretty rare probably that they're caused by just one factor. So to what degree is Alzheimer's disease attributed specifically to genetics? Well, that's
1: a great question. Um, You know, Alzheimer's is what we refer to as a common complex disease, meaning that genetics is just one part of the picture, but it's a pretty important part of it. So um, there have been some studies that try to create uh, an estimate of what's called heritability. Um, And so some of those studies suggest that the heritability of Alzheimer's is over Uh, 50%, meaning that genetic factors are are pretty important in the development of the condition. Uh, Another way, I think, of looking at that kind of the flip side of the coin is the the Lancet group that's done a lot of focus on modifiable risk factors uh, for Alzheimer's and other dementias They've suggested that uh, if we kind of took care of all of the modifiable risk factors that are out there that are important, we would still only be preventing or delaying onset of 40% uh, of dementias. So I think those um, are indications that genetics is an important driver of Alzheimer's and why there's been so much attention over the past decades in genetic research. Uh, That being said, as we'll talk about, um, it's certainly not the... uh, the entire picture and that there are things one can do to reduce risk. And even if one does have the genetic risk factors, uh, the ones that Thor and others have that it's uh, those aren't kind of going
0: to be destiny necessarily. Wow. So that's, I mean, it's not direct, but it implies that perhaps even half of it you think is maybe genetics. Yeah.
1: Again, you you can kind of, some people can maybe quibble with some of these heritability estimates that I was referring to, but the, those suggest that uh, if you did try to quantify, it probably would be slightly over half of the, uh, you know, variability is explained by, by genetic factors. Not all of these are identified, though. Um, so and we could talk about that, that there are certain known genetic risk factors, and then there's still other uh, factors that are presumed to be genetic in nature that we just don't, we haven't quite pinpointed
2: yet. When you think about lifestyle risks risk factors um, that uh, influence development of dementia. To what extent um, do those apply if you have sort of uh, genetic risk factors as well? Like the does it mean if you're at genetic risk, it kind of doesn't matter if you smoke or not? Or how do you think about the overlap uh, between lifestyle and these genetic factors?
1: Yeah, I think there's certainly, even if you're at elevated genetic risk, I think we should still be encouraging the positive health behaviors that we talk about with brain health, whether it's, you know, exercise, stopping smoking, healthy diet, remaining socially and cognitively engaged, those kinds of things. I think they're relevant no matter what your genetic profile. Um, And I think uh, also they're just important for outcomes beyond dementia risk. They're, as, as you know, Donovan, they're important to mental health and other aspects of physical health. So I, I certainly would not want to give anybody the message that, hey, if you have a family history of the condition, or you, even if you learn you're at genetically high risk from APOE or other types of testing that you shouldn't still. In fact, maybe it's even more important than ever than you attend to some of these uh, health behaviors that I think you're alluding to.
2: And is it right? I, so I think that there are some specific, say, very rare, essentially like a dominant risk factor where if you have this gene you will develop Alzheimer's. Is, is that the case? Yes. Yeah. And we've actually known this since the
1: 1990s. There are these rare mutations um, that are located uh, on chromosomes 1, 14, and 21. So there have been three that have been identified um, that if you have one of these mutations, you'll almost inevitably get Alzheimer's, and usually with pretty early onset, so maybe even in the, you know, ones 40s and 50s. So fortunately, they're very rare, so they only account for maybe like 1% to 2% of all Alzheimer's cases. But in those situations, you know, the the genetic determinants of Alzheimer's are, are very prominent, and we do have kind of specialty clinics, including here at Michigan, where if you, you know, have a family history that suggests that kind of autosomal dominant form of the disease that you can get tested and because it might inform your, you know, your life planning or, um, but, uh, if you ever saw the movie still Alice with Julianne Moore, you know, when Oscar, that was, she was an example of that. She was in her fifties. And, um, so she did have this kind of rare mutation that caused the disease, but, you know, over ninety percent of cases, like I, I alluded to earlier, are not caused no, by exactly. those rare mutations.
0: So genetics can be sort of confusing, and I, I even get confused by some of the terms people use. And I, my undergraduate degree was in bio biochemistry, <laughs> um, so I'm curious. Like I, I've I've heard, I heard you use this term, and I've, I've heard other people talk about apo APOE. E. Yeah. What are they referring to specifically?
1: So the yeah, APOE stands for apolipoprotein E. So it's a specific gene found on chromosome 19, uh, you know that we all have, and so but we all have different uh, forms of it depending on what we inherit from our parents, and so we each inherit what's called uh, an allele from you know our, our parents, and so we have two copies of this APOE gene. And there's the different forms are known as E2, E3, and E4. And uh, it's the E4 allele that's the the risk allele that elevates risk for Alzheimer's. And so Thor, who you alluded to earlier, he has what's called an E4, E4 genotype. So he inherited one risk allele from each of his parents. So he has even more risk than someone who, you know, just has one
2: E4 allele, if that Makes sense, but but so then is it right? So even one copy of the E four raises your risk somewhat, and then two is even further. Correct, yeah. And what's interesting about this
1: is that uh, the E four allele is relatively common. So those other mutations I was just talking about are, are very rare in the general population. But I think about one in four adults in the U.S. are E four carriers. So that's that's a pretty common genetic risk factor. Luckily, the E four E four specific genotype is only maybe about like two to three percent of the general population. But still, compared again to some of these uh, genes that cause other diseases like Huntington's, you may have heard about, or you know, th- those kinds of uh, mutations are are very rare usually in the general public.
2: And so, does ApoE testing happen in clinical care? Sh- should it happen in clinical care? Well, there's, yeah, been a lot of
1: debate over that. And so I think the, the concern is that is kind of twofold. One is that even though APOE is an important risk factor, it's, it's not as nearly as predictive as some of those other genes I was talking about earlier. So you could, ha- we well, a phrase I like to use is the E4 allele is neither necessary nor sufficient to cause Alzheimer's. So you could have an E4, E4 genotype and never get the disease. You can get the disease with an E3, E3 genotype. So it's not super highly predictive. And that combined with the fact that we don't have kind of proven prevention options, we you know, like in heart disease, we would put somebody on statins, for example, we could, or we have, you know, perhaps more confidence in the risk reduction uh, recommendations uh, as opposed to Alzheimer's where you, you know, can in theory modify your risk, but it's not... Um, as tried and true in other conditions. So I think that combination of the lack of predictive value of the test and the limitations in what we can recommend uh, lead most medical groups to say we should not be generally doing this routinely. Um, And I think part of that, too, is the concerns of the harms. And here's where a lot of our research has been trying to look at, you know, how likely are these harms and to what extent might they occur? You know, I think the fear has been, hey, you learn you have bad news about this terrifying disease like Alzheimer's, are you going to become depressed or anxious? Or if this information got in the hands of your insurers or employers, could they use the information against you? So um, I think there's been fears about that the harms might outweigh the benefits. And so there's generally been reluctance in the medical community to do this
0: testing on a widespread basis. Do we have estimates of the risk, like how, how, what your risk is if you have one allele or both for this?
1: Yeah, and they, you know, they can vary from study to study, but I think the the statistics I like to use, you know, the general population lifetime risk of Alzheimer's is about 10 to 15%. Um, if you have an E4 allele, uh, I think we could say maybe your risk is, is roughly double, so maybe like 20 to 25% lifetime risk. And if you have two alleles, then it's you have several times the risk. So maybe, and some of the estimates I've seen you range from maybe like forty-five to sixty percent lifetime risks. In the E4, what we call homozygotes, they have two copies. So again, important, but not like it's not like if you have if you have the E4 E4, you have like a ninety percent chance. Like some of these cancer genes you hear about, where you know it's really high risk if you're a carrier.
2: Sometimes when we think about other kinds of tests in clinical care, you think about um, false negatives where somebody really has it, but the test doesn't show up or false positives where they don't have it, but the test shows up for this kind of test. Is that an issue at all or is it it, it's accurate? And if you have it, it shows up. I think
1: it's pretty easy to to have a correct call of your genotype. Yeah. So I, I don't think the concerns of like, oh, we're misidentifying people who are E4, E4 as e3 e3 that is not a concern but the test is not it's it's just more of a what we call a susceptibility test it's you know an analogy might be like hey if you have high cholesterol it puts you at higher risk for for heart disease or if you smoke but it's not like we use those tests as you know you're going to get the condition if you test positive for how expensive is it It's not super expensive, Um, and I think an interesting development has been it's now available through these direct-to-consumer tests, which themselves are like, what, $99 (laughs) through 23andMe, or they have a holiday sale now, maybe it's even less. Um, So in, in 2017, 23andMe got FDA approval to offer ApoE testing as part of, you're probably familiar, they do all kinds of genetic tests in one fell swoop. You just spit in a tube, you send your sample in and they can tell you about everything from risk of Alzheimer's to Parkinson's to, I think they test for BRCA mutations for breast and ovarian cancer. They test for, you know, ancestry and all kinds of things. So I think that, that development has raised a lot of concerns, I think, in the medical community where, you know, our preference is you get the genetic test as part of a, you know, formal medical consult. Maybe you meet with a genetic counselor even, and then this is a very different approach where, hey, you're just logging on to your personal website and learning all this information about yourself. And you know they have some educational materials on the website, but you're not, it's not in the context of discussing it with a medical professional. So that's been an interesting um, development. And there's been a lot of debate over, is it even appropriate to, to allow this information to be d- disseminated that way or
0: so. That's that's probably such an interesting area for you to look at in terms of how that people receive the information via these two different routes. I think that's that's really interesting to think about how they respond to that. You know,
1: yeah, and I think you know there's certainly been anecdotal reports of people having pretty strong reactions to being you know blindsided by this information. Like, hey, all I wanted to do was learn my ancestry. Am I as Italian as I think I am? And lo and behold. Oh my gosh i I was even thinking about Alzheimer's, but this test shows I'm at. So I think there are concerns that people aren't properly prepared for the kinds of information they might get. Um, that being said, I don't the, the studies we've done, and I think the, the broader literature does not suggest that this has been like a widespread occurrence of you know catastrophic reactions where people are becoming clinically depressed or, or anxious. And so I, I think given that we haven't seen you know the FDA modify its approach to you know regulating these kinds of, of tests or you know requiring that people have to meet you know with a genetic counselor before they learn the information that kind of thing
0: we've been asking about this APOE thing because it comes up a lot and you you see it out there in the media um but it's you know it's not the only way that you can test for you know potential risk factors for Alzheimer's disease and you know, there's other things like biomarkers. Yeah. I'm wondering, like, like, how does it compare to those in terms of, I mean, from your perspective, like, I don't know, uh, like, how good of a test it, is it compared to biomarker tests?
1: Yeah. So when you talk about biomarkers, I think you're usually referring to, like, the, the two cardinal features of Alzheimer's are these amyloid plaques that can develop in the brain and tau tangles. You know, it used to be that we could only see if those were present upon autopsy, but now... We are able through neuroimaging or you know a spinal tap, just what's you know kind of commonly referred to cerebrospinal fluid, lumbar puncture, so you can get information that way. But now you can even get information through just a simple blood test that can detect, hey, are these amyloid plaques starting to develop in the brain? So to me, they're probably going to be ultimately more useful than a susceptibility gene test like APOE. Um, but some of the same issues arise. So you could be amyloid positive from one of these tests and never go on to develop the condition. A lot of older adults do have some amyloid plaques, but their thinking is fine and they never get clinical manifestations of, of of Alzheimer's. Um, but I do, I think there's a lot of excitement though in the field about these biomarkers because not just could they identify people are at high risk but they can identify people who might be appropriate for some of the emerging therapies that are starting to come on board. You know, we just had a, it's controversial, but there was a new FDA approved drug last year for treatment of mild Alzheimer's. There was a, there's another one that seems on its way to approval. So I think these biomarkers are going to be ways that maybe identify people who might be appropriate for some of these new therapies. Um, and so, you yeah, know, but, I think some of the same sensitivity needs to be kept in mind in terms of how do we communicate because it can be pretty overwhelming for people and and make sure people understand, you know, again, this this message of just because the test is positive doesn't necessarily tell us a whole lot about if and when you're going to develop full-fledged dementia of the Alzheimer's type.
2: So on a little bit of a tangent, uh, occasionally on some other episodes, we've talked about the idea of cognitive reserve, Mm -hmm. um, or sort of protective factors, education, cognitively challenging activities um, that can be protective in aging. Is there any sort of uh, evidence that in any way that factors that um, that there's an overlap in sort of risk factors for Alzheimer's disease? are they um, in any way related to cognitive reserve? Is there any overlap there? Yeah, that's a good question. Um,
1: I don't know if this gets exactly at what you're asking about Donovan, but you know there are some genetic factors that are protective so the I mentioned aPOE4 but the E2 allele, which is a pretty rare one, if people have an E2, E2 genotype, it actually seems to lower their risk of Alzheimer's. So maybe, and again, we don't know the mechanisms exactly by which this occurs, but I think in theory it's possible that maybe they could uh, play into some of the resilience you're, you're talking about. I think my understanding of cognitive reserve is that oftentimes it's really a way to compensate for pathology that might be happening. So it's kind of like a parallel process. That allows someone, let's say they do have some of these plaques develop or tangles, they, their neural networks are, are you know developed enough that maybe they can still function even in the presence of this you know, pathology that maybe the genes are helping to drive, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Thanks. So now we got some of the basics kind of out of the way. I was wondering if we could kind of shift gears a little bit. And start talking a little more about sort of the patient perceptions and some of the, I, guess, I suppose, the ethics around genetic testing for Alzheimer's disease. Something mm-hmm. that I know that you and your, and your team has thought a lot about. So we have a, a devastating disease um, for which there is no like formal cure, although there's some, like you mentioned, a couple promising things, perhaps in the pipeline. Um, and we're talking about person finds out, you know, perhaps they're at higher risk. And that's pro- probably pretty chilling information to receive. I was wondering, um, could you tell us just a little bit about what you've been doing with the REVEAL study?
1: Yeah, so the REVEAL study, as you alluded to earlier, is a series of clinical trials we've done over the years, but they've all kind of been united by this basic premise like where we're offering people the chance to learn risk information for Alzheimer's. Most of it has been focused on APOE testing. Um, And then we're following people afterwards to see how do they respond to learning that information, um, in terms of psychologically, behaviorally, uh, et cetera. And so one of the good news set of findings is that some of these feared psychological reactions we haven't really seen happen too often. And so, uh, and again, there's some caveats to our studies there. This is a pretty selected group. These are people who are signing up for this, You know, they tend to be, on average, higher educated than the general public. Um, And we, you know, they usually meet in our studies with a genetic counselor. So we do have a lot of things in place that might not generalize to -to direct-to-consumer testing or or, or other contexts. But but even given those caveats, it's been reassuring to see that uh, even when people learn they're at elevated risk, they typically have not... You know, responded by becoming clinically anxious, clinically depressed, you know, a lot of rumination or worry, uh, that has not typically been how people have responded or if they've responded in that way, it's been kind of in the immediate aftermath of learning it. And then, you know, by six weeks or so, you know, they're back to their baseline levels of psychological functioning. So that's been one aspect that's, that's been, um, I think a positive, uh, but and it's been interesting to sort of see what people do with the information. You know, some people um, do things like you might expect, like they're starting to do the Sudoku puzzles more frequently, or maybe they do attend to their diet and exercise more closely. Um, some have added, uh, you know, like nutritional supplements or vitamins. You know, there's this whole um, world out there of nutraceuticals, and some of them are explicit. If you go to the health food store, you'll see these, like, things on the, like, supports memory or these kind of more vague statements that to me are concerningly misleading in some respects and uh you know it's not totally irrational i think there have been some epidemiological studies that suggest things like vitamin e vitamin c ginkgo maybe have some benefits for brain health but a, a fair amount of our participants you know said that they did something like that and so that's one area where you know, I think we should keep an eye on because that's a much more unregulated industry than our, you know, pharmaceutical industry. And so, and to me, it kind of also fits into these broader concerns, even beyond genetic testing of as our population gets older, what kind of quick fix, you know, products, whether it's cognitive training or other kinds of things are are being marketed to older adults to kind of capitalize on this, you know, fear of, of developing dementia. So that's been a, an interesting element of of what we found. Uh, another thing that that we found that sometimes people do that I think all raises some broader ethical issues is you know one rational response might be hey I'm going to think about getting some long-term care insurance um if I'm at high risk because uh that might help if I do develop Alzheimer's, you know might help me and my family uh, down the line. Um but uh, interestingly, there are laws on the books that protect against genetic discrimination. So you may have heard of this legislation called GINA, the Genetic Information non Discrimination Act. So that prevents health insurers or employers from using genetic information against you, but it does not cover long-term care, life, or disability insurance. So there are these gaps in that protection against genetic discrimination that uh, some have said, well, maybe we need to expand GINA to cover those. Um, I don't mean to suggest that genetic discrimination is like rampant in the long-term care. I don't think we we know that, but it's in theory, it's something I think people worry about. That if ApoE testing becomes more commonplace, you know, could long-term care insurers or life insurers start trying to factor it into their premium decisions or coverage decisions? So,
2: as part of the study, do you report? test results to participants clinicians? Not as a routine matter of fact, but we try to give them
1: information that would be useful if they want to take that to their physicians,
2: but we try to leave it in the hands of the participant. Yeah. And I'm curious if you ever hear back then from participants about how that conversation with a clinician goes, because my guess is most clinicians would feel totally unprepared. To discuss these results and wouldn't really know how to talk about the risk or what the results really mean um so just curious if you've gotten any kind of feedback on that front yeah well i guess i'm thinking of a broader study we had a study where we looked
1: at people who had used direct-to-consumer genetic testing more broadly and so we surveyed consumers of both 23andme in this company called pathway genomics at the time had a DTC model going, and we found that over one in four of our respondents said that they had divulged their results to their primary care physician, which we thought was a pretty high number, and I think a lot of them, we didn't go in great detail as to, well, how did that go and what happened, but some of this issue of, you're talking about, like, the potential lack of preparation or self-efficacy on the part of their physician, They were, I think we, we did find that, that a lot of them were saying the physicians didn't really know how to respond. And I think some of the patients felt frustrated by that. But to be fair to primary care docs, this is not part of their training because a lot of these tests are not in routine use in clinical care. They don't have that clinical utility where they would be warranted. And so I think it does create this interesting dynamic. Some of the ethicists like to call this phenomenon uh, raiding the medical commons. They feel like that they get frustrated with the companies that kind of punt to the doctors, oh, if you have any concerns, go ask your doctor. And they don't have to worry about it. And then the doctors are like, I don't want to be dealing with this information that's arguably not of direct benefit to my patients.
0: You know, clinicians, in, in, in my opinion, are some of the most practical people I've ever met. And, um, I'm just curious, like in your work, do you ever come across clinicians who even question the value of early detection of dementia in particular, yeah, I mean, alzheimer's
1: yeah, i think I think certainly, I think it does depend on specialty. I'm sure Donovan has a lot of thoughts here, too. I think a lot of more generalists are 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 gonna wonder is this really worth going down this road that might be very laborious, time intensive, costly when at the end of the day, what we can offer has so many limitations in terms of, you know, we don't have the magic bullet cure. And, um, whereas I think the specialists like the neurologist might say, well, it's still, you know, an early diagnosis can help the family plan. We do at least have some therapies that can maybe in the short term, help improve symptoms. So I think there are disciplinary differences among physicians into how useful they think an early diagnosis is. And Donovan, I'm sure you can add on here.
2: Yeah, I guess I also think, um, I definitely think of the timing of the diagnosis as distinct from learning learning about genetic risk. So for sure, I think a, a diagnosis generally is like useful information for people and for their families the learning about your genetic risk, I think is trickier. Because um, as we discussed, a lot of the like, sort of the things you would do related to lifestyle would be the same, you know, regardless of what your level of risk is. And so if you're a clinician working with a patient in their 40s or 50s, say, there's potentially so many other things that you you and that patient are trying to address and think about and worry about. So then learning about genetic risk for dementia, where there's not a, a, a definite preventative intervention, and the general lifestyle counseling would be pretty much the same, regardless of what the, the test result is, I, I do think that that's kind of a hard sell for your average clinician to, to really think that that's worthwhile for the patient. Yeah. In
1: our work, we talk a lot about this distinction between clinical utility and personal utility of information. And I think, you know, clinicians are understandably very focused on clinical utility. And, but it's like harder to know what to do with these quote unquote, personal utility reasons where people, you know, a lot of our participants have said, well, yeah, maybe I, I should be doing these things, but I'm going to be more motivated if I know I'm at higher risk or A lot of our participants have said, well, you know, I I don't know exactly how it might be useful, but I would just rather know than not know. Knowledge is power. Um, And so how how do we value that sentiment, you know, in these decisions? And um, I do think, interestingly, though, we are seeing uh, APOE is now becoming relevant in other ways as well. Like there are some prevention trials for Alzheimer's where eligibility might be determined by in part by genetic risks. So if you're at high risk, maybe you become eligible for a prevention drug trial than you otherwise would not. And some people find that appealing. And uh, and then once someone has symptoms, uh, these new class of drugs, I don't know, have you guys talked about on other podcast episodes like Adjahelm or Season one, we talked to Ken Langa. So, well, adjuhelm is an example, but even Lakanamab or some of these other anti-amyloid therapies that are in the pipeline, they all seem to carry this side effect known as ARIA, mm-hmm. which refers to, you know, symptoms that can include, you know, like swelling or bleeding in the brain that are usually not a major concern, but can can present some problems for the patient. Well, it turns out that E4 carriers, not only are, are they at elevated risk for Alzheimer's, but they're also at elevated risk for side effects from these medications. And so there's some recommendations that, hey, if you're going to prescribe one of these medications to someone with mild cognitive impairment or early Alzheimer's, you should be doing APOE testing concurrently because then that might help someone know you know, their chance of side effects. So m- maybe people, it might even inform their decision whether or not to go on the medication to to begin with if they feel like you know, I was kind of on the fence and now I know it's likely I'll have these aria side effects that maybe I I don't want to go that route.
2: So I, if, if this is too personal, you don't have to answer Scott, but I'm, I'm curious, have you been tested and, um, would you recommend your own family members get tested? I have, I just feel like
1: being in the field, I thought it would be interesting to learn my, not just APOE genotype, but, uh, um, so, yes, I have been tested. Fortunately, I'm, I'm not an E4 carrier. So, But, it, you know, it wasn't like major news. It wasn't like, oh, my gosh, what a sigh of, of relief. But, I, you know, I did find it moderately helpful to, mm-hmm. to know that. I do not have a strong family history of, of Alzheimer's or dementia, so it also maybe made some sense in that context. Um, but, yeah, I feel like otherwise it's kind of a personal choice. I don't recommend it. On the other hand, I don't like actively dissuade it. I do have some colleagues who, I think, would say they would say, "Oh, it's a bad idea to get direct-to-consumer genetic testing because some of these risks we we talked about earlier." I, I tend to think that you know most people are decent judges of their own ability to handle this kind of information, and so I'm kind of a, a centrist, I guess,
0: on the issue. What percentage of the population actually like even want to get tested? I mean, I was just curious, like, there's got to be some avoidance among some people that just don't want to know, right? Even people with a family history.
1: Yeah, for sure. My uh, my wife would, would fall in that category. The, the health psychology literature has this concept of, like, health monitors and health blunters, and, like, some people who, like, they want to know every possible piece of information that's out there, even if it's not directly beneficial, whereas others, the blunters are more like, you know... If I really absolutely need to know something, then maybe, yes, I'll learn. But otherwise, I don't want to cast a pall, you know, on my day if I have to think about these things. So I think there are some really interesting individual differences. What's been interesting to us, though, is when you ask questions about interest in genetic risk information for Alzheimer's versus other conditions, the level of interest in Alzheimer's is pretty close to conditions that you could do much more about, like like the cancers and heart disease. So we've been kind of surprised at the level of of Alzheimer's interest when we do these kind of broader surveys of, of public interest in this information. Of course, you know, saying on a survey you're interested is one thing, and then signing up for testing is another. Um, we saw that in in other conditions where pre, some of these pretest surveys suggested, oh, everybody's going to want Huntington's testing who's eligible, and then only a small proportion, you know, came forward. But there does seem to be a broad interest in You know, because it's a common disease. I think there is some sense that even if we don't have a cure, maybe there's things you can do. And then again, these personal utility reasons, I think a lot of people just feel like, hey, I I have this general sense that I want to know what's my relevant risks and, you know, it may or may not be useful down the line.
0: Yeah, it's very different from saying on a survey that you're interested versus like taking a deep breath and actually doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you alluded a little bit to some of the like the effects that you've observed in your in your studies on how people sort of change their behavior a little bit and you start doing more puzzles and those types of things. What do we know like you know downstream like long term consequences i mean do we do we have evidence that sort of like there're you know people that are that were tested for it way ahead of developing symptoms and any differences in terms of like you know end of life care and Advanced, you know, planning and all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I don't think we have much literature on these kind of longer term impacts. Our, our studies have tended to follow people for maybe like six months to a year after they learn the information. So we we don't really have a great feel, um, you know. And some folks are learning this information in our early studies. Some of them, you know, people are in like their 40s and 50s, where again the likely if they were going to develop it. it it would still be likely decades away. So I think it's still an open question as to what are the longer term impacts of this kind of information. And, you know, I think some one thing that's interesting is the, the genetic counselors I work with have told me that, you know, a lot of people put a lot of credence, understandably, in if they have a family history, like when did my Parent or grandparent developed the disease, and so, like that's like a time where I think people's anxieties might resurface. Like, hey, I, I got this result in my fifties, and but now I am in my seventies, and I know my mom started showing symptoms at, like when she was seventy-five, and so you you might speculate that maybe the the reemergence of some of these concerns would might be many years after the fact of learning your genetic risk, or you know, these kind of early signs of you know subjective concerns or I, you know, or or things, everybody has memory lapses or they, you know, lose where their keys are, can't find their car in the parking lot. And, but if you, you can imagine that someone who, Hey, if I know I have a family history and I'm this E4 carrier, the meaning of those kinds of symptoms might be more dramatic, you know, when they're in their seventies and eighties.
2: Are there some say new, new, new trends on the horizon for, uh, for dementia-related testing and disclosure? The biomarkers we were talking about earlier, I think,
1: are are really going to be a big deal and, and are already... I mean, we already have commercial companies um, marketing blood biomarker testing to aid in diagnosis. Um, and I think that's only going to expand dramatically. Again, if we see lacanumab, for example, getting approved next year, like people seem to think is going to happen, I, I think we're going to see a real... Explosion of marketing of blood biomarker tests. You know they're going to be marketed for use in cognitively impaired patients, but you can see how then, you know, older adults. Hey, I'm not formally impaired, but I, I I'm not as sharp as I used to. Can't you just give me that test doc? Or you know, you can see the expansion of of this because if it's a blood test as opposed to I have to go get a PET scan you know, the costs and access issues will be dramatically different. So I think that'll be an interesting area to to monitor. In terms of the genetics, I think where the field seems to be moving is these uh, polygenic risk scores that you may have heard about, where, you know, APOE would be just one of like a whole panel of tests where then your predictive value might be more powerful if you can combine looking at many genetic risk factors at once. You know, most genes aren't going to be as powerful as APOE, but if you add up, you know, 20 to 30 others, you, you could start to see the predictive value of, of these polygenic risk scores, you know, being greater than just APOE alone. So I think we'll start to see potentially, right now they are being used
0: heavily in research, but we might see some greater application of those. So I must say one of my goals today was to try to segue back into Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> um, he, he uh he has a a series now on national geographic series looking at different like therapies and like strategies to like prolonging health and yeah. all this and he actually has a whole episode on memory and another one on healthy aging where he wears um i, I was struck by that this last one where he wears like an aging suit you guys ever seen this it like yeah. mimics it mimics aging and it like restricts your motion and blurs your vision and all stuff it Was quite fascinating I, I do wonder though how much that entire series may have been partially I mean maybe he's just interested in health or maybe it was partially like driven by so
2: actually it was totally because of this Matt when I read your introduction uh I I googled it and so he as part of the one of the episodes for this series he was tested for APOE and got the results as part of that testing and then they actually apparently the like series consulting doctor had a whole like conversation with him because the plan was to like present the results like live in front of the camera oh, and wow. so when he saw these results they had a whole conversation about like do you you should know this do you want to talk about it on the show so that's how how this all actually happened was
0: because of that series wow I have, to watch, I have to watch that one episode
2: well i'm glad you brought
1: it up though because i'm uh although my entertainment weekly subscription has lapsed i, I am a big <laughs> Pop culture person and a believer in the importance of of pop culture in sending messages for better or for worse mm-hmm. about health and medical options and you know Angelina Jolie was very public about her BRCA testing experience mm-hmm. for risk of hereditary breast and ovarian cancer and I think that really drove a lot of interest in the field and mm-hmm. created a lot more like referrals and inquiries so it'll be interesting to see if this what this does for, for APOE testing. And what, what was interesting to me was that I haven't seen, I haven't like looked really closely at the media coverage yet, but my cursory glance was there wasn't a lot of discussion of, you know, genetic information has implications for other family members as well. And so when you learn you're an E4, E4 carrier, any of your children will be what we call obligate carriers, just the laws of genetics or any of your Children will then automatically inherit one E4 allele from you as the parent. And then we know also by deduction that his parents are each at least E4 heterozygos because he had to inherit one. So, him revealing that, whether his relatives know it or not, says something about their status Mm -hmm. too. And maybe it's not, maybe they already knew that or maybe they didn't care. But I think we do need to think about genetic information differently than some other types of health risk information because of these ripple effects. And from an ethics standpoint, I think, you know, the rule of thumb in in medical genetics is we don't like to disclose genetic information to children or adolescents unless there's something that's medically necessary to do so. So, you know, the fact that his kids would now have this information about them public, you know, interesting yeah some might say oh that's that's inappropriate because does it saddle them with information that they would maybe rather not have
0: all really important things to consider scott thanks so much for joining us today yeah thank you guys this is great as we wrap things up i also want to thank chelsea cox for her help behind the scenes putting this episode together chelsea is a graduate student in dr robert's lab and an emerging scholar in this space If you enjoyed our discussion today, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Other episodes can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud, as well as directly from us at capra.med.umich.edu, where a full transcript of this episode is also available. On our website, you'll also find links to our seminar series and data products we've created for dementia research. Music and engineering for this podcast was provided by Dan Langa. More information available at www.danlenga.com. Minding Memory is part of the Michigan Medicine Podcast Network. Find more shows at uofmhealth.org slash podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from the National Institute on Aging at the National Institutes of Health, as well as the Institute for Healthcare Policy and Innovation at the University of Michigan. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the NIH or the University of Michigan. Thanks for joining us and we'll be back soon.